Hello, my name is Johnny Mockney, and I'm another bored, nerdy college student who decided to start a podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to the first episode of We Are Movies. Um, basically, the whole idea of this podcast is I sit down with people and I talk to them about movies that mean a lot to them. Um, for this first one, I talked to Matt Ottinger, who I've known since high school. He is the videographer over at Okemist High School, but he is also the ex-host of Quizbusters, and you can also find his name in the uh, special thanks sections on a lot of books about game shows. Um, we decided to talk about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, his favorite movie, and a movie that I was really excited to talk about. Um, so, just a word of warning for uh, some of you guys out there, this conversation gets uh, pretty dense. Uh, Matt uh, definitely knows his Star Trek, and so uh, we we really got into the nitty gritties on the, the the movie Wrath of Khan itself, and on like all things Star Trek. So if you're a Star Trek nerd, you're in the right place, and if you're curious about learning about it, you are also in the right place. But either way, we uh, had a whole lot of fun talking about it, and I I really hope there's an audience out there <laughs> somewhere for this. Um, without further ado, here is me and Matt Oninger talking about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. So, uh, thank you again for coming on. I'm delighted. This is fun. We're, uh, so... I thought of you for this, for the first episode of this podcast, because uh, I did a story for the paper my senior year of high school, and I was asking people in the faculty what their favorite movie was, and without hesitation, you said, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the greatest film of all time. Right. Um, which I'm, you still stand by that? You, usually, I say the greatest movie ever made. That's ever it, made. It's a little, oh, okay. it's a little easier to get off the, get off the tongue. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you're notoriously a Trekkie. Uh, well, I mean, I guess notoriously is is, is negative. <laughs> that, not you're fine. famously a Trekkie. Some people would say the word Trekkie is negative. Really? Yeah. There are people who say that that Trekker, Trekker, is, Trekker is the more Trekkie is derogatory. Trekkie is derogatory, okay. and that Trekker. I understand. I don't know that that's ever really gotten picked up though, and I don't have sure. any problem with any of it. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess I mean I. Um, I, I'm partially a trekker. I, okay. I, I'd consider myself a moderate trekker. Uh, I guess I want to start off, since you're as such a fan of Star Trek, where did your Star Trek experience start off? I came at it from a kind of an unusual angle. You would think, because I'm older, that I would have watched the original series, and I didn't. I was a little too young for that. I was six, seven, eight when the show aired originally. But a few years after that, what I discovered, and this is going to be very strange, uh, although Trekkers, Trekkies, will know about these, there were books. James Blish, a science fiction author, would write paperback adaptations of the television episodes. Each book would have six or seven episodes that he created, you know, the, 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 the print version of. Okay. And they'd be packaged. Uh, at first, it was just one collection, and apparently it sold well because suddenly there was Star Trek II, not Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, just right. Star Trek and the number two, and then the number three, and then the number four. And as a, as a young teen, and as I got older, 
every time I was in the mall, I would go to the bookstore and see if there was a new. You couldn't look things up on the internet. You had no idea with whether or not there would even be a new volume. But these volumes would come out. So my first real passionate awareness of Star Trek was reading the stories of the original episodes. Now, of course, around that time is also when Star Trek was syndicated, and right. that's when the, the popularity of it really took off. So was this, uh, are we thinking like the mid-70s? Mid-70s, okay. exactly. And I'm, so I'm reading these stories, and then I'm watching the episodes, and almost like a checklist. Have I seen, have I read this story yet? And has this one been adapted yet? And I would see one and say, well, that hasn't been adapted yet. And I would read a story and then I would watch, oh yes, I read that one. But for me, it was a lot of reading at first and then seeing it, which I think was a pretty unusual attack on, okay. on the original Star Trek. Right, right. So um, so this is the original series then. Right. Your first, I, you were exposed to a novelization form and then and it's exactly. regular. Did you watch all of the original series? Oh, have of you, course. Have you seen every episode? And over time, oh, over time, I've seen them over and over and over right, again. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So what was it about Star Trek, do you think, that got you so interested in the story and the world? You know, it's anyway. my father was a big science fiction fan, and the stories he was reading were more than I could handle. Okay. He was he was reading adult science fiction sure. and and I wasn't that wasn't accessible like to me. Philip K Dick. That well that right. kind of thing. Yeah, okay. absolutely. A heavier Asimov, I mean, sure. you know, the big ones, but still something that was a little bit too much for me. Uh, Star Trek was on television. Star Trek was something that you know, it wasn't that they always like to say it wasn't made for kids, but it was made accessibly to children. Uh, certainly more easily accessible than, than what my father was reading. And I wanted to be like my father. So I was reading science fiction. It was just science fiction that also happened to be on television. I don't know that I have any grand explanation of why, you know, the, the motives of, of, of the reasons why Star Trek itself was was powerful to me as a child. I mean, since then, there's certain, certainly uh, some motifs and things we could, we could get into. But uh, I just really liked seeing the stories and reading the stories at the same time. Right. Okay. So so you've started off with the show with the original series. Um, were you there when the motion picture came out? Did oh, sure. Go to the theater? Absolutely. See, we're, let, let me add one more thing in between. So sure. Star Trek is happening. Yeah. And now the syndicated shows are wildly popular and conventions are happening and things are happening. There was also that cartoon series. Oh, right. And right, see, right. that hit... At just the right time for me, even though I was a little bit too old to be watching Saturday morning, I was at this point 15, 16 years old, a little too old to be watching Saturday morning cartoons, but this sure. was Saturday morning Star Trek. Right, right. And I had no idea what these stories were going to be because they hadn't been adapted yet. Right. Uh, Alan Farmer would eventually do the adaptations of even the cartoon series. So those were glorious to me, these new adventures. Plus, the other thing that was happening is that Blish himself and then many other science fiction writers would start creating original novels based on the characters. And having gotten into it as a reader, those were always very interesting to me. So Star Trek novels were something I appreciated. And, you know, we could get into the history of why Paramount finally decided it was time to mount a movie. Uh, I was very excited. At this point, I'm in college. Right. And a lot of my college friends were all gravitating to each other because we have a passion for Star Trek. And, okay. you know, we had loved Star Wars when Star Wars came out. And, sure. oh, my goodness, they're going to do a Star Trek movie. So, yes, I was 
again, I, I keep hitting this point. I bought the novelization before I saw the film for, right. for Star Trek right. the Motion Picture. I was very into it. And I don't know if I was there opening night, but I was certainly there the first weekend. So, um, cause I'm glad you brought up Star Wars, because um, I think there's a misunderstanding now of what Star Trek... Star Trek is such an important pop, part of pop culture mm -hmm. that before the motion picture came out, and probably around the time that you watched the animated series, it was more of a cult phenomenon. Is sure, that right? Sure, okay. absolutely. It was not a mass appeal thing like Star Wars was when it did. Right, right. Absolutely. So... I guess now that this cult following had been had been formed, so the, almost probably like a decade after the show had been uh, first aired. Sure, sure. Um, and then Star Wars comes out in '77, and that's a big hit. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that had a lot to do with why the motion picture. Oh, enormously, right? absolutely. Okay. At this point, everybody's looking. What can we do in science fiction? For heaven's sakes, Disney was making science fiction films, right? And Paramount said, "What do we have?" And said, well, we have Star Trek, and we have these weird conventions where people go and they dress up and they wear pointed ears. There's obviously a a, a base of people that will want to see Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's deciding how, how popular can we make it, but certainly they had a property that they already that already had a life to it yeah. that they could take and adapt into a motion picture. Right, right. So, okay, so the motion picture comes out and you see it in theaters. What, what was your first reaction to that? Well, I want to be clear that it was great to see these actors again. Right. I mean, I you know, it, it, it obviously, obviously we're heading toward. Oh my goodness, it was such a disappointment. But I don't want to lead <laughs> with that. Right. Right. It was great to see the actors again. Right. That had a lot of weight to it. That meant something. That here they were, mm -hmm. all of them, and 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 they were having an adventure. The fact that it wasn't a particularly exciting adventure. The fact that it was all, you know, everybody's wearing gray uniforms and everything's gray, and the, and there's and there's and there's the villain is a machine, and 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 these new people, we don't care about these new people. Who are these new people? There were so many things to be disappointed in. Sure. And of course, ultimately, it was something of a disappointment. Right. Uh, I didn't rush back to see it over and over or anything. But I, but I do want to make the point that it was a good thing to see them. Right, right. Well, and I think one thing you can kind of say to Star Trek the Motion Picture's credit is that Gene Ronberry's fingerprints are all over it, I think. Is it, well, we can go down a path now. Because, well, he had a lot to do. He did a lot of rewrites, right, of the... Of the movie, I am of the mind, and this is this is sacrilege in some circles. I sure. am of the mind that Gene Roddenberry was very lucky, and that the creativity that really was what Star Trek became in almost every form was because of people other than Roddenberry. Sure. Now, you know, he is the great bird of the galaxy, is how right. is how Trekkers refer to him. Uh, and he certainly created the show. We certainly owe him all of that. But especially in the later years, and especially with the films and with Next Generation, most of what he did, I did not see as a positive. Right. Well, I, I know one big thing. I know we're jumping a bit ahead, but I'll, I want to get to this before we get to Wrath of Khan. When Next Generation came out, uh, I understand that Gene Roddenberry was very... He wanted to make it a point that there were no interpersonal conflicts right. amongst the protagonists <laughs> yes. because his vision for the future which i think is sort of the whole thesis statement of star trek is that in the future we've progressed beyond our petty human squabbles that we have now right 
but he did take it to the extreme exactly. of in the future nobody will ever argue <laughs> and so eventually um, when I, I think he, he passed away during Next Generation was he, that correct? He was effectively he was in ill health after about the second or third year and okay. I think passed away a couple of years after that. So after he passed away that's you can see watching Next Generation when the dynamics changed a little bit. Well effectively the show is measured by the first two years and then everything after right. and it was right. effectively when he no longer I don't I think he was still living but he no longer had control right. and people like Rick Berman had taken over and and had took it in a different direction and right. from about three on uh, I think people like to say once Riker grew the beard or shaved the beard grew the beard once <laughs> Riker grew the beard things th that's that's right. literally what they say this pre-beard and, pre and post-beard yeah, yeah. Uh, from, from season three on is where Star Trek really starts getting good right and that's when Gene Roddenberry has less and less to do with and that's why when everyone thinks of Riker they think of him with a beard too. absolutely I completely forgot that he that's right the first the first uh, season or two he right. doesn't have a beard and I don't think that's the reason the shows aren't very <laughs> that good wasn't, that wasn't one of Gene Roddenberry's rules was no, make sure no. Riker's States clean shaven, but there, but there is a there is great controversy over wh who it was who decided that that uh, Patrick Stewart could in fact be bald. Right. There was a right. huge thing about hair, and I've heard it both ways that Gene Roddenberry desperately wanted him to have a hairpiece and and not be a bald captain, sure. and that Gene Roddenberry was the one who said, well, in the future nobody will care about whether they're bald or not. Right. I've heard it both ways. I don't know. You know there's so many <laughs> I legends. I love that, though. I love that in the future nobody would care because it's right. such a... Uh it's it's such a trivial thing to concern yourself with, and if in a perfect future where, you know, we're we're it completely goes with I think his vision of of the optimism of Star well, Trek. Certainly, per personally, I certainly feel that way. Yeah, right, that, right. That's why I've been so interested in that particular story. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, so jumping back in time a bit. Okay. Uh, so you saw uh, Star Trek the motion picture. Uh, it was a disappointment, although. You, it was a. I mean, you're seeing these actors playing these characters mm -hmm. again, but you're also seeing them on the big screen for right, the first time, right? Uh, which is a monumental thing. And Paramount threw millions of dollars at it. For it, sure. it the, the original movie cost forty-five million dollars, and this was 1979, I think. Right. You know, right. A, a hugely expensive undertaking. They really, really made a spectacle. Robert Wise, very famous director. Not necessarily known for science fiction, although he did sure. do. He uh, was a two-time Academy Award yeah, winner. He did do, yeah, he did do. Didn't he do uh, Day the Earth Stood Still? Um, yes, I think that's yes. his. But yeah. but in in general, not the so. big space spectacles that we that we've come to expect. Sure. But still, you know, legendary director. And it's just showing that they're putting so much care and right, like, right. money into this. So, least. you know, there was a lot of stuff on the screen that on the big screen was pretty spectacular. Right. You, know, you go back, we, we talked about this before we started recording. You go back and look at some of the old original shows, and they're laughable. They're, right. I mean, it's just awful. Well, yeah, I wanted to get into that a bit, well, we, too. We can, yeah. Is that, well, okay, so Robert Wise... Uh, by the way, I just looked it sure. up. Obviously, he's behind West Side Story. Of course. Uh, the Sound of Music. Sound of Music. Those, you know, right. if, that's, if those were the only Andromeda two things he strain. did. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. If that was a, oh, <laughs> I didn't know Andromeda Strain. Andromeda right. Strain. So, yeah, he, yeah. so he has some science fiction in him. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, uh, so basically, we, I love one thing about the, the motion picture that makes me laugh is that there's like a diegetic reasoning for why the Enterprise is no longer made of cardboard. Like it's been remodeled. There's because there's moments in the original series. It's wonderful. There's where they make no secret of the fact that this is just a set. People will destroy things with their hands. There's mm -hmm. one I remember. I think it was uh, 
uh, the episode where uh, Spock is uh, has to find a mate. I think it was Amok Time. Amok Time, one yeah. of the good ones. Yeah. Uh, where he just like smashes a monitor with his fist, and it's clearly like there's nothing in that <laughs> monitor, and uh, and so they have this reasoning in the movie that it's been remodeled, and so now we have a movie budget that makes it look more exactly like what you'd think a futuristic spaceship would look like. There is an avid fan who actually created fan episodes, video episodes, and okay. recreated the Enterprise, the original Enterprise, in an abandoned strip mall. Okay. took a supermarket-sized space and <laughs> rebuilt the sets. And one of the things he had to do, you know, this was fairly recently, within the last decade or so, he had to, he had to dumb it down. He, he, could, he could make it better than the original series right. easily with current abilities, but he wanted it to look as much like the original series as possible, so he actually had to go back to the chintzy-looking <laughs> kinds right. of things when he could, you know, he had the skill to make it better <laughs> He actually had the skill to make it look exactly the same, right? Right. Which was no small feat. Well, it's it's funny that uh, <laughs> I if you watch something like Discovery, Star Trek Discovery now, which is a prequel to oh, Star sure. Trek, yes. <laughs> but it's far more advanced of like, than than the, what it's supposedly taking place before. Um, you, you can't let yourself go crazy with that. Oh, stuff. you definitely you know, you can't because you could easily. Uh, yeah, uh, the timelines. You know, you just kind of and people talk about the Kelvin timelines of the, the, the movies the and then this is and then that and right. just why enjoy is, the show. Why is young? Why is young Khan uh, a, a white British man, <laughs> for example? Um, yeah. But so. It, they put a lot of money into it. From my understanding, it was kind of a financial failure. Uh, it was. It 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 didn't break the studio. Sure. It did fine. Right. They were expecting more. It was a disappointment based on expectations. But if sure. you go back and look at the box office, it did all right. Okay. Okay. So, um, what I found here was Harv Bennett, the producer. Yeah. Uh, he met with uh, Jeffrey Kat- Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, um, and. <laughs> uh, Charles Charles Bloodhorn asked him, "Can you make it for anything less than forty five fucking million dollars?" <laughs> when referring to uh, this is Star Trek II: The Wrath right, of Khan, because right. um, Gene Roddenberry was creatively pushed out of the way exactly. for this movie uh, because they thought they figured it was mostly his doing that the first one was exactly. the success they wanted it to be exactly. Um, and so, and you would argue, and I'd argue this too, which Gene Roddenberry, you know, God bless him, he created everything. Uh, it was probably for the best that he wasn't right. involved. Right. Uh, which, which is funny. I, I'm always against making the whole Star Wars, Star Trek dichotomy, but he's a bit like George Lucas in that respect, I think, too. Where, you know, uh, that's what people say. I'm, right. I, I am perfectly happy with Star Wars movies. I do not know that world as well as I know sure, Star Trek, sure. but right. I, I don't have any animosity toward it. But yeah. Yeah, that's what I hear is that George Lucas had a great idea and right. other more creative people have really taken it and made it what it is. And that's when a, a lot of people just to get a bit sidetracked um, when they talk about uh, A New Hope or the original Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, was one of those movies that was saved in editing and you've, I've seen some clips online of his original vision of it and it was unwatchable <laughs> a, a lot of it and, uh, and then you know it was turned into what it was sort of by committee which kind of goes against I guess the general like what we as movie snobs and just snobs altogether, we like to consider, you know, art belongs to a person and it shouldn't be run by committee, it should be run by the individual. But in some cases, it is better when it's by committee. Sure. When, when there are more voices sure. lending themselves yeah. to the project. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Uh, 
Did, did you see that? You saw this, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, let, let me do the timeline a little bit because you sure. mentioned you, you got you made a really good point about one of the two people that was so totally important in making Star Trek II what it was, and that's Harv Bennett. You had that great quote about, can you make it for $45 million? I'll, I'll eliminate, I've got sure. that reputation, you know, I can't I'll of course, of course. eliminate the F word in the middle there. <laughs> uh, his response was terrific. He said he had a television background. Yeah. So his response was, for that kind of money, I can make you five films. Right. You know, he, he, was, he knew he could do things under a budget. Which is a... a as a studio head, that's your dream man. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Guy who says, I'll absolutely. make you something for a fifth of the, you know. So we're doing things cheaper this time. We're right. not hiring legendary directors. We're hiring up-and-coming directors. We're yeah. not hiring legendary musicians. We're hiring up-and-coming musicians. Right. And we're hiring, you know, the, the, the director was Nicholas Meyer. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you the, the one thing that Harv Bennett and Nicholas Meyer had in common, and they are the two people that really made Star Trek II what it was, Neither of them were Star Trek fans. <laughs> right, right. He hadn't seen not, the show. Neither of them had seen right. the show. Both right. of them just watched a bunch of episodes. <laughs> right. uh, Harv Bennett claimed to have watched all, you know, we call it binging now, right. which would have been, you know, he, somebody in the studio would have had to brought him 16 millimeter films <laughs> and thread the projector. <laughs> yeah. There weren't VHS, well, probably by that point there were probably VHS tapes, but I don't know that it, Star, Star Trek had like been converted. Yeah, I don't know that Star Trek had been converted at that point. Sure. It was almost certainly he was watching 16 millimeter prints right. of all 79 original episodes <laughs> to get a sense of what the show was about. Right. And Meyer tells a similar story. He doesn't claim to have sat down and watched all of them. Uh, but neither one of them knew what Star Trek was, mm. except that they binged on it. And by doing that, they weren't so close to it that they had to be slavishly faithful to what a fan thinks Star Trek ought to be. Right. But by being intelligent, creative people and seeing it all at once, right. they could pick out what was good about Star Trek yeah. and then make something special. Right. Well, and and that's when when he was re, uh, was it was it I don't know if it was Bennett or it was Meyer uh, who came across Space Seed and then thought that that story was worthy of a sequel. Yeah, I, I think it was Bennett who takes credit for specifically doing picking Space Seed. But okay. it's interesting how many different cooks there are in this broth. Sure. Uh, because Nicholas Meyer is not the credited screenwriter. Right, Jack Sowards is a, a, a journeyman TV writer. Yeah, not not really a big name at all, uh, and but was a big Star Trek fan. Sure, he he would go on to write an episode of Next Generation, but uh, at this point, you know, he's written the High Chaparral and yeah. and and Laramie and westerns and things. He was the screenwriter that Harv Bennett brought in. Lots of other people had ideas. Uh, many people had ideas, and then Nicholas Meyer was brought in to direct, and Meyer had already proven that he had a, a writing background as well. What he did, Nicholas Meyer went, took everything, took everybody's ideas, and he asked, however, whoever he would ask, what are your favorites? What are the best things about all these ideas? And somebody might say, well, the Kobayashi Maru is a great idea. We should use that. Or... Th this line of dialogue is really, really good. Or mm -hmm. this, the Genesis device is a really neat effect, and we can do some really creative things with, with special effects and, and, and that. Mm. So Nicholas Meyer took all the different ideas people liked, and he created the screenplay that, we, that, that became Star Trek II. Right. Uncredited. Sowards is the name that's credited for the, for the screenplay. But everybody knows 
it was what Nicholas Meyer did to compile all the different ideas and make it what it became. Okay. Okay. Sowards is the one credited, by the way. Let me talk about this. Uh, the, the, there's a big deal about how, you know, it's the one where Spock dies. Right. And it was something contemporaneously, as the movie is being developed, and this was in the era before, you know, we're still not in the Internet age yet. Sure. But leaks would happen. Things yeah, would happen. Right. Things would be in magazines. And uh, it wasn't as, probably as big of a deal as it would be now. It was more of a deal than you would think, though. That's really? what I'm saying. It's like they were trying to keep it secret that Spock was going to die. So it would be like if we found out now what's going to happen in Avengers Endgame. Right. Or that kind of Right. It, okay. it was, yeah, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, but even more so because there weren't these, you didn't know spoilers. You didn't know. Right, right. You didn't know anything about movies yeah. before they came out. And word had gotten out that Spock was going to die. Uh, but the story is that Sowards was the one who came. They really needed Nimoy. They really needed Spock to be in right. the movie. And I was going to bring this up. Was This was a important part in getting him to be in it. Absolutely. Right. And right. Sowards was the one who came up with, hey, what if we give Leonard a death scene? Yeah. And Leonard was sold on the death scene idea, big right. time. Uh, he loved the death scene idea. And the death was going to happen early on, as it sort of kind of does in the Kobayashi Maru. Right, you know, right. theoretically they're all dead, and we're still trying to figure out who the female captain is b- before Christy the big Alley, before yeah. the big reveal. <laughs> Everybody's dying, um, but so he created this story where Spock dies early on, and Leonard Nimoy said, "Great, I'm on. I'll do this one scene. I'll be there a week. I'll be th- I'll be done with it." And then he'd do a rewrite, and Nimoy would be a little bit further. The death would be a little bit further in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. But Nimoy liked what he was written, so right. he's okay, sure, whatever. And then it kept getting pushed back. Yeah. To, until the point that we actually got Spock for the whole movie, and then the dramatic death scene at the end. Well, and it's I think the things that they plucked out, <clears throat> it's perfect. Because well, I'd say this to anybody who maybe isn't well versed in Star Trek, if, if you want to watch Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, which I you. I'd, we both agree is probably the best Star Trek product sure. there is. The most accessible is probably four. Yeah, def- yes, yeah. Well, because four is a comedy. Right. Mostly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, again, contemporaneously, uh, it's dated now. Yeah. But right. when it came out and was set in what was then the present, it was spectacular. It was so entertaining. Right. But even now, now that it's dated, let's just go with two. Let's sure. just let's right. just stick with two. So, um, uh, so basically. I would say to somebody maybe who hasn't seen any Star Trek, you definitely need, I'd say this is mostly a sequel to Space Seed than it is anything. Sure. So I'd, you'd watch the episode Space Seed. Uh, I think for emotional context, I recommend Amok Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommend uh, a Journey to Babel. Sure. Uh, a little bit, because you, you, you kind of understand Spock and his relationship with Kirk a little bit. I think that there's some emotional context there in those episodes that helps the payoffs in Wrath of Khan uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but, I mean, definitely Space Seed is the primary story. That of course, yeah. To. Uh, and in terms of uh, uh, the motion picture, the only real thing that's carried over is that Kirk is now an admiral. Uh, that is, you know, you can kind of easily decipher when you're watching the movie. Um, but I, the, the Kobayashi Maru test, I think, thematically makes this movie as perfect as it is to because you it's the first scene in the movie and it's the you know this no win situation we're introduced to uh, Kirstie Alley's character who's uh, uh, this is her first movie I think I think so her first she's role. certainly credited as introducing Kirstie sure. Alley right right yeah. right and so um, you have her she is uh, let me find her name so I don't uh, 
Savic. 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 Yep. Savic. You just ask. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I should say. So yeah, Savic is uh, this test. And we don't know what's happening at first, but basically, it's a no-win situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole point of it is to test the character of of the 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 crew, basically, or specifically the captain, um, and what they would do in a no-win situation. And then we le- later learned that Kirk. Um, Sort of when he did the Kobayashi Miru test, he's done it three times, uh, right? Yes, according that's to right. yeah. according to like, Spock, right? And uh, he was able to pass by basically fixing the game and changing that's the nice. changing the conditions, conditions of the test of the test, yes. right? Right. Yes. And because in Kirk's words, he doesn't believe in no one situation, right? Which perfectly sets up his arc that's fulfilled by the end of the movie. I think absolutely. Um, but one big thing that this movie is about uh, that makes it so mature, I think, in terms of being a sequel to, you know, kind of a silly <laughs> science fiction no, series. No, no offense taken. Is a, and as a yeah, fan of the series, yeah. I, you know, I call it silly. Um, is that it's it's also about getting old sure. and and facing mortality altogether, and and uh, that's. A really key scene early on when uh, Kirk talks to Bones and they have it's Kirk's birthday and they're having a drink together and I always think Bones is his relationship with Kirk uh, and Spock is a little underrated when people talk about Star Trek. They don't bring him up a lot, but it was that core three were kind of the leads. That was a very important thing, and it was something that Bennett and Meyer took out of the TV series that may not have even really been fully explored in the TV series. Sure. Was that Spock and McCoy were the yin and yang to Kirk's, Kirk's decision making. Right. The, the pure logic, the pure emotion. And the three of them, the, the triumvirate, was very, very important. If there's anything I wish there had been more of in Star Trek II, it would have been McCoy's character. Sure. McCoy's yeah. character happens to be my favorite character. Okay. I'm a big, a big fan of DeForest Kelly. Uh, and he was terrific. He was sensationally funny in the, in the third movie, but right. he and he had his moments. But but yeah, it's a really important dynamic for all three characters. Right. And I think it's important that 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 at the end, it's it's McCoy that ends up housing the consciousness the, oh, of, yeah, of, the of, of Spock remember. and everything. And yeah, right. exactly. Right. Uh, so yeah, McCoy is a very important part of the of the Star Trek. Universe right. that doesn't necessarily get as much attention as he should. Right. But uh, those of us who are fans get that it's a th- that it is a three-way thing. Yes. Yeah. And I think um, <laughs> one thing. This is. I mean, this is a small thing, but one thing that I think McCoy benefits a lot from in being in a movie is he's now allowed to curse, and I think that makes his character <laughs> more of what he is. Just the damn it, Jim. Like every yeah. time it's it's. It's like that one thing that he needed in the show that he couldn't <laughs> fulfill. Absolutely. Um, but, I mean, that's what, even when Star Trek was at its silliest, I think if, it's, if you look at the, I guess, the 12 good episodes, right. or, or even the, or the bad ones, uh, the characters were always, the, the, particularly those main three, drew you in because it's this, everything that uh, Kirk, le- like you were saying, Kirk learns from Spock and Kirk learns from McCoy, and and Spock learns from Kirk to a certain extent mm-hmm. uh, in how you know he learns a lot from that human side of him because exactly. uh, when you find out that he's half human that's actually you know biologically that's uh, something about him but um, 
Kirk, I think, there's this myth that he was, like, the James Bond of the sky, like, that he was this, like, frat boy who was always, like, betting women left and right. <laughs> but if you look back at the original series, he was this very level-headed, mm -hmm. smart guy. Like, he was a little quippy from time to time, and he was a little cocky from time to time. But he was very much, like, he was what you'd expect your lead hero of a show to be. Um, and I think... You, you get when they go into the movies a lot of these characters they do feel a lot more natural i think mm -hmm. to than in the original show just because of i think the style of of acting that that I, you, they're still clearly the same characters but um you get to know i think you, you there are points of emotion in the original series but uh, i think it's the most emotional you've gotten in Star Trek to that point in, in connecting with these characters. The, the TV series, the original TV series, didn't really have time to be about sure. anything important. You've got a 50-minute episode. And, and, and you're cranking another one out every week. And, and it's and, also and, episodic because this is before people could ever watch every episode. So right. you, you have to complete an arc within 50 minutes, mm -hmm. and you don't really have a whole lot that carries over. And if, if an episode is good, sometimes it's almost by accident. Sure. And there were certainly some happy accidents in Star Trek, too, that, that made it as, as good as it was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or, or, you know, fortunate happenstances. Uh, the, the thing about you mentioned earlier about that he has a reputation for betting all the beautiful alien women. All the things you think you know about Star Trek will tend to be based on a handful of actual incidents. Sure. The green you, lady. You think, <laughs> you think Kirk had a different woman every week. Yeah. Maybe a dozen over 79 episodes, you right. know, really. Uh, you think every episode McCoy said, I'm a doctor, not an engineer, <laughs> or whatever, he would be a doctor, not a blank. Yeah. That didn't really happen all the time. Right. But, that's, but those are the easy things to, 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 to pin something on. You, sure. You, you, you say, that, well, that's what the show is like. We look for catchphrases and, exactly. and characteristics, and it was a little more... I dare I say complex than that. That was a little more complex. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways it was more complex. In some ways it was perhaps even more simplistic. Because right. they just it was accidental. Like right, right, right. These sorts of things didn't, didn't uh, you know, I don't know how many times, uh, and I'm realizing this is, this is audio and I'm doing the neck pinch. I'm doing, I'm doing the, uh, <laughs> the Vulcan, the, neck, the Vulcan pinch. Neck, pinch. Right. neck pinch. You know, it was a way for Spock not to throw a punch, but it wasn't like he went around neck pitching people every week either. Sure. Right. These things were based on a handful of episodes in every case. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and that's where I think... The people underestimate how important these actors were to the roles oh, yeah. because the characters weren't that densely written but what we take away from them is purely it's it's Shatner and Nimoy and uh, and Kelly and what they brought to the characters I think a lot of what we see in them come, like when I think of uh, Bones I think about uh, DeForest Kelly's like his one eye kind of being a little smaller than the other and kind of always looking confused and angry and I feel like that image that we get of those characters comes a lot from what the actors brought to the roles. It, it, it's important to think about the real life situation um, Shatner we're talk, we're, now we're way back to the original series we'll eventually talk, talk about Raphael we, we again we'll get back to it yeah. Shatner at the time pretty big star he had yeah. been in a couple of series. He was a leading man. He had been on Broadway, made a couple of films. Right. He was a pretty big star. Was this after that the Twilight uh, Zone episode? With yes, the, this would have been after the Twilight Zone okay. episode. Uh, Nimoy was fairly well-known, not a huge star. Okay. And Kelly, in real life, much older than either of them, had a, a real-life career that just sort of never really took off. Mm -hmm. He had been in a ton of stuff, mostly westerns. 
but was not a real well-known quantity at all, just happened to catch Roddenberry's eye. <laughs> so we had the big star and then these other two that were just kind of not a big deal. Sure. Nimoy, of course, the popularity of Spock exploded and in a way that never, still never really happened with DeForest Kelly's mm -hmm. character. Nimoy became bigger than Shatner at right. that point. He really crossed, there was a, you know, your lines as you're graphing <laughs> this, Nimoy suddenly becomes the big star of Star Trek. Right. It was one of the behind the scenes things that, you know, that's part of the reason that there was a lot of animosity for a lot of years right. is that Shatner resented the fact that he's supposed to be the star of the show right. and Nimoy's the one getting all the fan mail by far. <laughs> it was a huge thing for Kelly's career, certainly by far the biggest thing he ever got to do. Mm -hmm. And at the start of the second season, they started crediting him in the opening titles, which right. was considered a big deal. Right, because the first two seasons it was just uh, it was just Kirk and Spock right. that got the... Right, right. exactly. And then, uh, and then, I mean, I guess speaking of these other characters who, one thing I love about Wrath of Khan is we get Everyone is very is pretty important. Every nearly every um, supporting character, like uh, you know, these we have these characters like Sulu and Scotty and Uhura uh, and Chekhov. And Chekhov. They're basically, those four. Those basically, are the, those yeah, four yeah. who we remember from the original series. Oftentimes, they'd have one line in an episode. Absolutely, they were very very minor. Sometimes, sometimes very more rare that they would have anything to do except <laughs> you know hailing frequencies open or right. course laid in. Right. And, I mean, I guess at the time, uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry was known for, uh, Star Trek was sort of a, it, it was very progressive, not just in its messages, but in terms of, like, how he wanted to be inclusive. He had somebody of every race. Right. And, uh, and... Eventually, I think it was it was season two. Chekhov came in because they wanted a younger person and a Russian. And a Russian, they, they, even though Walter Kenning was not Russian, they, <laughs> right, they, they, right. they wanted a Russian. He character. pulled it off. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I mean, they have more lines I think, in Star Trek: Wrath of, Wrath of Khan almost than they did. Absolutely, in the original still series. not a whole lot. Still not a whole lot. They, they certainly don't drive any any plot point or of course, anything. Right. Uh, except for I think a certain point, a Chekhov does. Well, sure. Uh, which is funny because in the original episode, Space Seed, where they first encounter Khan, which by the way I think Khan is a villain, perfectly encompasses the whole thesis statement of Star Trek because he comes from what they see as an archaic time. Sure. You know, he comes from the 1990s, <laughs> which I guess in, in the, when the show came out is the future, but still in Gene Roddenberry's eyes and everybody else's eyes going to be considered a barbaric time uh, compared to where we eventually will be. Exactly. And so he's been frozen since the 1990s and, and, and so it makes sense that their greatest threat is somebody who's not a product of this more enlightened age. Um, and so he, you know, he's defeated pretty easily by Kirk for when he, he beats him with a, uh, a rod and, and space seed in the yes. original episode. <laughs> uh, and then they, you know, they've uh, um, sentenced him to exile on the, on, uh, do you remember the name of the The pla SETI Alpha five or six five. or five, five. Uh, yes, yes yes yeah SETI Alpha 5 um, and then in Wrath of Khan we have uh, Paul Winfield's character mm -hmm. and Chekhov end up there thinking it's SETI Alpha 6 because they're setting up Genesis uh, this project for like a I guess a synthetic planet sort of like a, a place that will support new life forms um, which is kind of run by Carol Marcus who is an ex-lover of uh Kirk's kind of feeding into mm -hmm. the our idea of who Kirk is. Um, although 
in another way where it kind of matures everything, Kirk now has an illegitimate son. Right, right. And, uh, you know, he doesn't kiss anyone in this movie. <laughs> like, he's, a, you know, he doesn't, you don't, ex- you expect them to maybe get together romantically at the end, but they don't. They don't. Like, no, it's just, they really you know, don't. You know, she's yeah. just, she's the mother of his child and they're mature about it and that's, that's it. And, uh, but, uh, so what's interesting actually is that uh, Khan sees Chekhov and recognizes recognizes him despite the fact that Chekhov was not part of the cast at the time when Khan was introduced. See, I've never had a problem with that. I know Neither there are people. I. I, I know there are people who do. Right. You know, Walter Koenig was not part of the cast of the TV show. That doesn't that, mean that, that he doesn't, wasn't. That doesn't mean that Chekhov wasn't uh, a, a lower-level security sure. person who was watching Khan in his quarters and, and or Con, something. Khan just has a killer memory. Absolutely. Of after 15 years. Yes. Uh, yes. Which. Um, I guess at this point we should talk about Ricardo Montalban. Oh, please. Because uh, I, I think he just... He, apparently he accepted less pay than he would have because he loved playing the role of Khan so much. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, to this day his favorite character he's played. I would imagine. I, mean, um, I, I would think he certainly made a lot more money playing Mr. Rourke. But, right, of course. Yeah. Um, which he took a break from, I think. To, to I, is that, I don't remember exactly how it, how it played out. But I, certainly he was well known at that point right. because of, because of and, Fantasy Island. Right. Um, and so he is, he just chews the scenery in every single scene he's in. And, and he... He runs every scene he's in, really, because he doesn't go face to face with any of the other main characters for the most part. There's a couple of things that, that, that I've read, and because I've read so much about this, mm-hmm. uh, Montalban said himself. At, at one point, he was not necessarily crazy about doing the movie, because screen time relatively small. Yeah, relatively small amount of time you actually see him. And he said, but somebody, agent or somebody, told him, but they're talking about you all the time. Yeah. And, you know, your name's in the title. You're, right. a, you're a big deal. Yeah. And he was willing to do it. There was originally going to be a scene where somehow they faced, he and Kirk physically faced off face-to-face. That, of course, never happened. Hmm. One of those things people don't really think about. Right. Your hero and your villain don't actually exist in the same space. Right. They see each other on view screens, but they're never in the same Right. physical uh, place together. Well, and it also almost seems that Khan is this so intellectually superior, as he'd say, sure. that he doesn't do his own dirty work. And that's yeah. a point that Kirk makes in the movie when he's like, uh, you know, in the famous Khan yeah. scene, you know, he's it's him t- uh, telling him, like, you got to come down here and face me, which he doesn't, you know. But... Um, I think it's. It, it reminds me of something. There was something Liam Neeson said when he was doing the movie Gangs of New York, which was that he was offered a different role in the movie, but then he said, "I want to take this role of the priest because he's in the beginning of the movie. I get a great scene, and then they talk about me for the rest of the movie." <laughs> sure. Which is every actor's best role. It's Absolutely. minimal work with mm-hmm. the biggest ego boost, which is what Ricardo Montalban got to do. He didn't. He's the lead in every scene he's in. He's the most important part of every scene, and he's the most important character in the movie. But probably got to do maybe the least work out, out of all the all the leads. The, the other thing you, you had mentioned about how he chose the scenery. A, a real quick story about that: Nicholas Meyer wrote his own memoirs, focusing heavily on the Star Trek films, not just Number Two, but certainly that's our, our point today. Um, and he said that when, and he's a fairly new director. Mm-hmm. And Montalban is among the Hollywood community, a legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not necessarily a whole lot of famous films for us anymore, but he was somebody who had been around a really long time and people right. really respected him. When he started perf- doing the work, he was even more over the top. 
mm-hmm. he was even bigger, even even more chewing scenery. And and Nicholas Meyer is thinking to himself, how awful! Oh my goodness, this won't work. How am I going to do this? And he talks about how he very tentatively goes to Montalban in his trailer and talks about what he wants and perhaps if you can dial it down a little bit and maybe we can do this and maybe we can do that. And Montalban, he said, got very excited. And I wish I could do the voice. It would be marvelous to do this in Montalban's voice. He says, oh, you're going to direct me. Right. He had reached the point, he had reached the point in his career where people weren't directing him anymore. Right. They were just letting him go and do whatever he was going to do. Because you're lucky enough to have him in your right. movie to, yeah. And he was thrilled, <laughs> according to Nicholas Meyer, he was thrilled that he was going to get direction and right. be able to modulate his performance. <laughs> and I just, I love that yeah. story. That's a great story. Because, yeah. I mean, I always, that's, you think about how many directors of these young directors, mm-hmm. specifically, who are working with legends, and they're too afraid to say, like, oh, this is what you're going to do, Mr. De Niro, and they, they just <laughs> let them, you know, but but as an actor, sometimes you require that guidance, and I would, it makes you better. I would love to know what George Lucas said to Alec Guinness, you know? <laughs> Did he say anything? It's, it's really? that same kind of thing, Frost you know? more intense, you know? Was, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, so, as I was saying about, uh, I guess we'll kind of um, come back around to this, but the reason Kirk's arc, I think, is so perfectly set up with the Kobayashi Maru test is that he doesn't believe in no-win scenarios. It's 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 also a perfect sort of meta text on like the nature of being a sequel to a television show mm-hmm. where there's not really consequences right. throughout the show. There can't be. You, there can't be because it's, it's episodic at that point. Yeah, nowadays yeah. it's different, but it, when you have an episodic TV show, nobody dies. None of your main characters die. At least they they stick around, and uh, each new adventure is just it's another one, and and it's you don't really. The, feel the effects, um, and so it makes sense for his character that he, you know, he doesn't believe in no one scenarios. He's never been in a no one scenario. Savick, I think, tells him like, uh, "You, you've never faced death." Right. And so, um, it's so great that in talking, so in Spock's uh, death scene, a, I think it's such a great moment for his character where he doesn't even think about it. He just, it's so Spock that right. he just, without, you know, he just gets up and he goes down uh, because, do you want to explain kind of what he necessarily needs to do? Well, I, I think anybody who's, list, who's listened to us this far must be a, a big enough fan to, <laughs> to know that, that he, he realizes that his Vulcan physiology is going to make, be, he's going to be able to survive the radiation in this chamber better than any human could do. So sure, it's up to yeah. him to go in and, and turn the screw or whatever it is. It's he, the logical he, It's the logical thing, thing that he right. can sacrifice himself for the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Right. And so... Um, he, you know, he goes in there and he he knocks out bones with the Vulcan neck pinch. Uh, you know, that's uh, right. He does do that in that movie. Right? He does. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, the the uh, remember he, mm-hmm. he uh, connects with him, and then um, I think so. That's so perfect for Kirk as a character because the, for the first time ever in his life, he's facing actual consequences. Exactly. When, when yeah. his well, best friend. The the one example, I mean, I think there might be Star Trek fans who are listening who sure. say, now, wait a minute, now, wait okay. a minute. Um, the greatest original series episode that anybody will say is the best one of all time is uh, The City on the Edge of Forever. 
Right. Where, you know, within the 55-minute time limit, he falls in love with Joan Collins' character right. and is required to let her die. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, right. it's a guest character. It's not somebody that we're going to be attached to any, any, any more than that one episode. But that was pretty powerful. And, sure. Yeah. And, and again, it's regarded as the very best of the original series. Mm. And it's a similar situation. He's actually facing a real consequence. Right. Now it's a consequence with a special guest star, yeah. not with your not with your second lead. Right. But but yeah, so let's let's but, not say it's never happened. Oh, of course. Of course but, yeah. but that's a, that's a good example though but of something like you're very saying, similar. The reason that's considered one of the best is because you are challenging the mm-hmm. fabric of this character. Right. And so uh, you know, Spock's death scene is it's it's beautiful, I think. It's, <laughs> oh, it's, it's incredible. genuinely like uh, Nimoy Got to do what he wanted to do mm-hmm. with uh, it, with so very little set too. You watch that scene and it's surprising how little they really say to each other and yeah. how kind of short of a scene it is. And it's it's great too because it happens after the climax of the movie. Right. This isn't a moment where he needs to now avenge Spock or do anything else. They've defeated Khan. Khan is you know he um, he turned on Genesis, mm-hmm. uh, sacrificed himself. Um, and they think they've won, and then it's just—it's such a mature scene where Bones is just like, "Kirk, you better come down here." And then he, you know, they—they they have to tell him that you know he can't open the doors, uh, and they bring back the line from earlier in the in the movie when um, they have the exchange of uh, um, the lives or, or the. <laughs> um, the needs of the many outweigh right, the needs right. of the few, or the one, which they exchange again, and um, uh, that, it says live long know, and prosper. As a comic, you know how important the callback is. Of course. And oh, that, yeah, and no. That's, and no, that's what we do. I love callbacks. Yeah, and this is a serious callback. It's Yeah, it's a very serious call, and, and it's so wonderful. You don't realize how well set up this mm-hmm. was until it happens, because you don't even realize during the course of the movie that this is a... Uh, a Kirk and Spock movie uh, because it's so wrapped up in Kirk and Khan. Um, but I mean, it's Spock who, who's technically the captain of the uh, of the right. Enterprise at this point, who who gave the who encourages Kirk in a great scene earlier on to take command of the Enterprise again when they're faced with this new threat. First best destiny. Yes, which is a great scene too. Yeah. Uh, 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 James Horner's score uh, makes the movie, I yes. think, and and th- th- that point when he's first. The, the theme that plays when he eventually, uh, when Kirk decides to, I, I'm jumping back, but uh, well, well, we, I alluded earlier to the fact that you know they, they couldn't hire established people, right? right. So they got this kid, <laughs> right, to right. do the music. It's nobody, James Horner, James Horner, <laughs> right? Who you know is uh, uh, the late great James Horner, and and uh, mad props to Jerry Goldsmith's original themes, oh, which they right, kept. Of course, but yeah. what James Horner did was just beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the way he integrates mm-hmm. uh, Gold's, Jerry Goldsmith's themes right. is, is is really great too. Um, but so anyway, you the the final scene. I, I love it for a couple of reasons. It doesn't. It's very true to Spock as a character. Sure. Because he did the logical thing to do, uh, sacrificing himself. Um, you know, he says, "I." But but still, there's this. There's an emotional resonance, and I am and always shall be uh, your best. Your, your, friend. your friend. Your friend. Yeah. Your friend. Um, but and then Kirk immediately understands like he's sad but there's this 
he, he understands that because he's learned enough from Spock to understand that the logical thing to do was the logical thing to mm-hmm. do and that there was no better outcome than what happened. And this is the ending of the movie. Like, that's the, <laughs> uh, which I guess I have to go back to your experience. When you're seeing this for the first time, because this is before the search for Spock comes out. This right. Is, at this point in time, Spock is dead for good, to everyone's knowledge, right? Yes. <laughs> there are different versions of this movie. Sure. And the version that Nicholas Meyer was not thrilled with is what was, what was in the theaters. Okay. Which gave you that little bit of hope. After they send his right, they they, they send Genesis. they send the the the, the makeshift uh, photon torpedo into a coffin thing and into the Genesis planet, mm. and there's this long lingering thing where they're on where it's, we're on the planet, and we're seeing the planet grow, and we're seeing the planet produce life, and there's Spock's coffin laid out there with all the growing happening, mm. and it was sort of a you know maybe right. Is that no, how you took maybe. it when you first saw it? Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Watching it, he says, well, maybe. And thinking like uh, somebody who likes the business of the industry, I'm thinking, well, they've given themselves an opportunity if Leonard Nimoy changes his mind. Right. That there's an opening. But by and large, now, most cuts of the, ver- of the movie now leave that out. Right. The director's cut and other versions. I saw the movie in a theater two weeks ago. And, yeah, I, and with, it, uh, William Shatner. With, right. with Shatner was there to do Q and A. He didn't really talk. He didn't give us any insights <laughs> about Star Trek Two. So there's no. But yeah, William Shatner was touring with the film, and it was only recently, before we started doing this interview, that I realized that scene was not in there. Really? That it's just them on the bridge. How do you feel, Jim? I feel young. I feel young, which and is then, a great line. And then, and then <laughs> Leonard Nimoy doing. The famous narration, which right. had always been done by William Shatner, right, which was kind of powerful. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. You know, yeah. and that's all there was, which right. is how Meyer wanted it. This little fake little, hey, maybe he's not really, you know, sure. Yeah, uh, that was added and uh, against his wishes. That's interesting because I watched, I rewatched this the other night to prepare for this. Okay. And um, was that I, scene? I was, watched. It was. It I was in, your, on, in that, on Blu-ray. There are so many versions out. Yeah, I have the. Um, with the Blu-ray collection of the original, the f- one to six, basically, okay. of those movies. And so that's the one I watched. And, yeah, it had that scene. It's funny, I never saw it as that. I never took nope. it as, as being a... I, I thought it was just this uh, this beautiful, you know, this is his resting place kind of moment. And I didn't take... But now that you're talking about it, it makes a lot of sense. And especially if it was at, at against Meyer's will. And it's hard to... Well, see, at the time, it's hard to distinguish having seen it in 82... And how much I really knew about what was going on and what might happen or what, you know, versus now having obsessed over the film for all these years later. And, and I know so much more now than I did when I watched it. And it's hard to remember it's, what you did know. Did, did I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Did I know that they were dangling a possibility of him directing, which, of course, was the thing that brought him back, right. was, was him directing number he directed three. Star Trek three. Right. Yeah. Uh, did I know that? I don't think I knew that. But did I think that was it for Nimoy? Maybe I did. I, I really can't remember because it was so long ago. Right. Okay. Um, because I can't, obviously, I was born after all sure. these movies came out. Yeah. So I can't, it's impossible for me to watch it with the lens that, that, that Spock is actually dying. But 
I still get the emotional impact. Sure. Nevertheless, even though I know, you know perfectly Star Trek well. Three, the yes. search for Spock, in that moment of watching the movie, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm seeing this from Kirk's perspective and Spock's perspective and understanding his sacrifice that he's making, that's powerful in and of itself, you know, regardless of how you might feel about them resurrecting him and, and him existing in the next movie. Um, which I guess that was the reason they, because he, he didn't want to do this one until he was promised a death scene, and then he was brought back for the third one with the promise that he would direct. And of course, he's really not in the third one. Really, sure, he's right. really not the in the third one un- until him. until the much like we're talking about. You know, they're talking about you all the time. <laughs> but honestly, Star Trek Three, he's in the last ten minutes. Sure, yeah, he's right. not. He's not in the film. Right. And uh, did he direct four? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Yes. Or did? Yes. If only there was a way we could look something like that up. (laughs) I I was gonna. You you, you mentioned something, and it was reminded me of something that we we talked about a while ago about the famous Kobayashi Maru scene. Mm -hmm. Again, seeing it for the first time versus it being famous, I would wouldn't dare be as pretentious as to compare this to Psycho, but I will. (laughs) Psycho is famous for its shower scene, right? But if you were a moviegoer in 1960 and you paid your you think Janet Lee's the your your hero dollar? You think it's a Janet Lee movie, right? And twenty minutes in, she's brutally murdered, and you don't know what the hell just happened, right? It was an incredible shock to a moviegoer. Yeah. Now, going in to see Star Trek Two and not really knowing what it was about, mm-hmm. and this happened the first the very first scene. We don't know who this is in the chair. <laughs> Everybody else is around, and they're all, it's, it's all going to hell. It's, they're uh, it's, all immediately tied. Yes. Yeah, what yeah. on earth is, it's, is going on? So it, it was a shock to the system. It's now, oh, the very famous Kobayashi Maru. Right. But right. when first time you see it, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I don't think it's unfair to compare it to Psycho. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think Alfred Hitchcock wishes he made Star Trek <laughs> <than God. laughs> Um But... So yeah, like you you said, it ends with Kirk saying, "I feel young," mm-hmm. uh, which again a callback kind of, because he was feeling old, old because of the birthday and the and the and the and the present of the eyeglasses right. and and then and he even the he even kind of laments after meeting his son too yeah. that you know yeah. he feels old. But it's this uh, like, why do you think he says that? What what about his arc makes him say, "I feel young"? Well, he's inspired by the sacrifice, maybe uh, by 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 understanding what what the relationship meant, even if if it had to be because of the death. Um, it just it's it's a very emotional payoff. It, right. Like we said before, the the television series didn't have time to be about something, and this movie was about something. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it, it's funny because it was originally. I mean. I guess I, it depends on who you ask, but I, a lot of people saw this as probably likely the final Star Trek movie, depending on how. I think that was that was uh, certainly they were th- going to figure out how to do it without without Leonard Nimoy, right? For, for for certain. And with Kirk's arc, it becomes kind of the birth of a new era of Star sure, Trek. Sure. Which was, uh, you know, uh, three more sequels and um, four more sequels. Uh, yeah, at least, at least four, at least, yeah, four uh, movies after oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Certainly with the original, uh, with the original gang, there were four more movies. Right, yeah. right. Um, and then a little bit more in Star Trek Generations. It's also interesting <laughs> in in one of the original drafts of the script, uh, Kirk's age was pointedly told mm-hmm. he was turning fifty. Oh, okay. the big the big five zero, right? And that was that was an element of it. It was the the the, the heaviness of oh my goodness, this is a, a real number. Shatner want, didn't want to have that included, not necessarily because he was vain enough to think that he was still a young man doing a young man's game. Mm-hmm. He just didn't think it would be it would be uh, it would be a distraction 
to have sure. the actual number be said. So Just, he, so they don't ever say exactly what his age was. Right, and, and that, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense in him just, just the sort of more abstract of the point is that he's aging, and mm -hmm. not even that he's as old as much as he feels old because right. of where he's at. Because right. he's an admiral, he's not the captain of a ship anymore. It's a desk job. Exactly. And, and Bones says to him, like, you shouldn't die behind a desk. Right. You know, you yeah. it. And so, yeah. um, and so that's great. Um, I want to talk a bit about, uh, before we're done, um, kind of going back to you and your relationship with Star Trek, because you, you talked earlier about what it was like when you first, you know, started watching it. Sure. And, now reflecting on the, we can talk about the grand scheme of Star Trek now. Mm -hmm. The original series, the Next Generation, uh, all of the other spinoffs. Um, what is it about it now that still resonates with you? Well, it's. I, I think it goes back to what Roddenberry said. I mean, I don't, I don't want to discredit Roddenberry entirely. Uh, hope for the future, a positive future. I, I think most of what the Star Trek versions that we've seen, not all. Uh, show an optimistic future, and, and we don't always get that in film. We don't always feel in real life that there's hope for the future. Uh, so that's the easy answer. Um, and I just like the stories. I mean, I, the, the, the storytelling is marvelous. I'm really excited about the idea that they're going to vastly expand the universe now. Right. They're talking about doing a lot more spin-offs. Right. Uh, well, and that's interesting because I think they just announced so the Kelvin timeline I believe is done with. The, okay. Uh, and then but I mean. For those, you, for those of you who are uninitiated, that just means <laughs> no more movies. <laughs> right. Well, or at least the J.J. Abrams movies. Right, right. Because I, there's still talk of a Quentin Tarantino directed Star Sure, Trek. I've heard that. Uh, which, I've heard of a cartoon show, a another, cartoon another show. animated show. Yeah. And I think this might be the same one, but a comedy about people who are at the very lower end of the of the of the Starfleet scale, you know, not yeah. not the captains, the ones that 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 labor on the lower right. decks, like the janitors, right, on a, right, on a, on a starship. <laughs> and you know what was one of the best Star Trek series of all right now? What's that? Orville. Oh, well, right, Orville right, is right. sensational. I was about to mention the Orville. Orville yeah. is wonderful because you're a big fan of the Orville. I love the Orville. Right. I, I and I, I would love to get Seth MacFarlane down. And the first question I would ask him is, how much do you really wish you could just call it Star Trek? Right. Because right. clearly, oh, it's Star Trek. He's a huge fan. I mean, he has many times, um, he's worked with Patrick Stewart. Sure. And uh, and Patrick Stewart's like talked about, like, oh, yeah, Seth MacFarlane, he's a big Next Gen fan specifically. Uh -huh. But, like, just of Star Trek in general, too. It's so, yeah, to get... And, and he, they, bring, he brings cameos, he brings actors in from the original series to oh, do yeah. guest spots on it. But I just think, how much happier would he be if it could just be a Star Trek <laughs> If it series. didn't have to be like an offshoot. Because right. what's interesting about the Orville, and I've watched a little bit, is you'd expect knowing what Seth MacFarlane does, if you've watched Family Guy or something, you expect it to be like a complete farce. No, yeah. But it's not. It's not. It's a comedy, but it's still very, it's very story-based, mm -hmm. very character-based. Mm -hmm. he's he, he, he understands a lot of the charm of the, the reasons people love Star Trek, which isn't just... You know, spaceships and <laughs> <laughs> it's almost too character based. I'm only about halfway through season two, so no spoilers. Don't tell me what's happening. Uh, and it's a slow spot. I mean, it's like several episodes in a row have just been two different characters on the ship who are in love with each other, sure. and that's all it is. And I, where is the action adventure? I, th that hasn't happened in the shows I've seen in the second season. So it could be a little bit more lively, perhaps. Right. But yes, it's very character-based. Have you come around at all on Star Trek Discovery? Because I know you, you, you kind of hated it when you first you saw it. You know, I was told <laughs> that the first couple weren't very good, but that it got better. I 
I'm still cold on it. I have okay. them. I don't have CBS All Access. I have friends who, who make copies for me, and I have them. Uh, but I've never finished season one. I'm told season two is great, but I, I haven't I haven't watched season two. I, it's the inaccessibility of it is an issue. <laughs> right. Uh, the fact well, now that now the Twilight this, Zone is on CBS All Access right. too, and that's something I really want to watch. On this odd channel, and they, is it is it worth it to pay for the channel just so you can see <laughs> Star Trek? I'm not sure it is. Right. But this show has not clicked with me the way I was hoping it would. Certainly, I'm not I'm not done. I mean, like I said, I still have the episodes. So, what is it? Do you think would make a Star Trek show click? What's what's key that I mentioned before? How much I love the McCoy character, and I think if 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 there's anything you you can assign the McCoy character, it's it's the humor. It's it's mm-hmm. it's the humanity and the humor of it. Right. Uh, I like my Star Trek to be a little bit lighter, and sure. Discovery certainly in the first season was very heavy. People will say that uh, uh, Deep Space Nine is the best of the Star Trek series. It's very good to me. It's too heavy. It's sure. not. It's not fun. Right. Uh, so well, and that, and that I guess goes with what you were saying is the whole point of Star Trek is 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 optimism. Right. In an optimistic future, it's not always heavy. It's you know it's it is light and people get along and it is episodic a little bit. <laughs> Let me tell you how uh, the, my my favorite thing right now and very few people even know about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna clue you into something. There's this nut on the internet, very creative genius of a nut on the internet who has taken Star Trek II and make it, made it into a musical. Really? Made it into a Broadway-style <laughs> musical, and it is great. Has it been performed on stage? It ha- he's had staged readings. Okay. He has written the songs, and the songs ha- he's put the songs out to a select group of people who know about it. Okay. Uh, and the songs are fun. The songs are snap your finger. The song you stuck stuck in your head song. He takes the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, turns it into a lyric. It's beautiful. Really? Uh, there's a, there's a scene where well the, the scene we talked about the great scene where where Spock is telling Kirk that he has to take command of the ship. Mm-hmm. They do that as a tap dance number. Oh, because really? Kirk is tapping around Spock's feelings yeah. and he doesn't realize that Spock doesn't have any feelings to, to bruise. <laughs> and, and it's a great number. That's wonderful. It's, that sounds... It is spectacularly clever. Okay. And I just love it. I've taken all the songs and made a CD out of it. <laughs> and I listen to it in my car all the time. I have to look that up. It that is sounds... just marvelous. And he's hoping to ha- make something happen with it. Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, it, I mean, the amount of things that have made it to the stage, I... I'd be well, baffled. It's just re- recently yeah. I noticed that there was a there's a Broadway the Broadway style that hasn't actually been on Broadway, and I doubt this would be either. A Broadway style musical version of the the uh, the, the Poseidon Adventure. Oh sure. So yeah, if they yeah. can do that, right? If you can do the, you know, the Poseidon Adventure, all you have to worry about are Paramount's lawyers, I think. Right, but, exactly. Uh, but, but the but the but the songs are very clever. The story, you know, they just it follows the sequence of the story, yeah. uh, and it's just a really fun thing. Um. Before we finish up, I wanted to mention that uh, obviously Star Trek Two is considered the peak of quality of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I think, for the most part, I think the movies are pretty great. I mean, the, yeah. the first one, you know, has uh, its issues. The second one is obviously the best one. I I know there's this thing that everyone says that the the odd numbered ones are the, the bad ones, the even numbered <laughs> yeah. ones are the good ones. I like Search for Spock. I think oh, Search sure. for Spock is pretty great. Four is obviously great. Um, five. Being the one where I guess in this battle between Shatner and Nimoy for for power, Shat, it's the only one Shatner ever directed. I think the only movie he ever directed. I think that's right. His entire career, and um, 
it's probably the worst Star Trek thing ever. Like, <laughs> That's fair. But I mean, still, yeah. like, it's it's insane. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's just just like as a kid, I kept hoping that there would be that new volume in the bookstore to read. Right. You kept wanting there to be more. Right. And it didn't matter that five wasn't all that good. Maybe there'll be a six. Right. You know, and maybe and there was be, a six and six and there was, was good. A, and then six yeah. was fine. Yeah. And, and you got to. It, it was the satisfaction of revisiting these characters. Right. I think that's a testament to what they created to begin with, is mm-hmm. that if you can make a movie as bafflingly terrible as Star Trek V, <laughs> The Final Frontier, it doesn't matter. You can still make a six because everyone's still in love with these characters and the world you've created. And and the like I keep saying, the overall thesis statement of Star Trek that still, I think, is incredibly prevalent now, uh, just as much as it you know was before. Um, so, is there anything else you want to say? Oh, uh, this has been delightful. I, it's, yeah. it's, 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 I, I, I want to, for the record, I want <laughs> to state that I know perfectly well that Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan is not the greatest movie ever well, made. Well, there's no greatest movie ever. Yeah, made. And, 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 and I hope <laughs> that, that that your your guests coming out will all have their favorite movies, and that you'll sure. be able to talk as passionately about those. I, I guarantee I'll talk to somebody who says like Clueless is the best movie <laughs> ever made, <laughs> and I'll, I'll you know we'll talk about. We'll, 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 we'll praise Clueless for, As if. for an hour. <laughs> exactly. But this has been really fun. I've really enjoyed yeah. this. Thank you for letting me get a lot of this off my chest. I don't, oh, I don't get to talk about this stuff very much. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll, uh, we'll just uh, come back for all the good Star Trek I'd be, movies. I, anytime. And, uh, of course, as I'll bookend this, or I, we talked about before the podcast, um, when I asked you what your favorite movie was, you said Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the Best movie ever the greatest made. movie ever made. Greatest movie, greatest ever, movie made. ever made. And then you said, or Citizen Kane. <laughs> Citizen Kane is second. Citizen Kane, which is, yeah. I guess, if there is an objective best movie ever made, it's usually sure. Citizen Kane. If you want me to come back and do Citizen Kane, or if you want me to come back and do North by Northwest, that's the oh, other North one. by Northwest. North by Northwest okay. is by far my be, favorite Hitchcock. I'd be happy to talk about any one of those. I'd love so, that. Uh, I look forward to that in the future. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Johnny. you've made it this far that means you've finished the first episode of we are movies thank you so much for listening uh deeply from the bottom of my heart i thank you um check back here anytime we're gonna have many more episodes where i talk to many more people about many more movies and uh, i'm very excited um until then i'm johnny mockney uh take care of yourself live long and prosper